Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 for our message today entitled, Rejoice, the Gospel Advances Still. The Gospel Advances Still. The theme of Philippians is, say it with me if you know it, Rejoice, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the last two messages, we looked at verses 1 through 11, where Paul sets the tone for everything he's going to say in this epistle. You recall from verses 1 to 8 how Paul sets the the tone by striking notes of gratitude, unity, confidence, and affection. Uh, He relates to this church in verses 9 to 11 what he prays for them when he thinks about them, namely that God would take the love that they have in the church and cause it to abound more and more. He wants their love to grow in ways that reflect maturity and discernment and produce sanctification in their lives. Though there is turmoil in the church, Paul begins by encouraging them and reminding them of the work that God has begun, that he's continuing to do, and that he will do until the day of Christ. This is a church, Philippi is, that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, from hardened Roman soldiers uh, who have come out of paganism, uh, and including uh, devout Jewish women who uh, work hard in their duties in society and who have come to believe in the Messiah. Over the last 10 years of the life of the church, there would be those who would be direct converts of the Apostle Paul, and there would be many others who have come into the church as a result of the preaching ministry of those who are part of the church and have been pastoring and shepherding and, and preaching. The ministry of the Word through Paul and Silas and Timothy and many others has borne significant fruit in the life of this church over the years, but it was not without difficulty or opposition. Paul and Silas's brief imprisonment ten years ago was almost certainly just the beginning of the opposition that the church experienced. No doubt they would have experienced many other forms of persecution as was common at that time. In fact, you get a hint of that. In chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We're going to get there eventually, but that is a significant passage that reminds us that suffering in our lives and suffering in the church is actually a gift of grace from God. Well, whatever the conflicts are inside the church, there are opponents outside the church who are seeking to hinder the growing influence of the gospel. I mean, put yourself in the sandals of these believers for a second and just imagine the thoughts that might be running around in their mind in their circumstances. Opposition has always been there, but it seems to be growing. Uh, The great apostle Paul, the man who planted this church and the man whose ministry you've supported as he has traveled around proclaiming the gospel has been incarcerated for three years. And last you heard, that didn't look like it was going to end anytime soon. Whatever good things are happening, and there's always good things we can see happening in God's church, there's a lot of difficult and hard things taking place. There's even things that appear to threaten the very existence of the church. There's uncomfortable strife inside the church, and there are opponents outside the church, and so threats to peace and unity abound. You can understand then why Paul would have to instruct the church on how to overcome anxiety in Philippians chapter 4. It makes sense that 
they have an absence of peace in their hearts and how that unsettledness creates an environment that's ripe for conflict. I mean, really, if you've been part of any church for any length of time, these dynamics are all too familiar. Really, until Jesus returns, these dynamics will be part of the normal experience of Christians and churches. Well, in the wisdom of God, Paul not only wrote to this church to encourage them, but the Spirit of God inspired him to write words that he desired for all believers of all time, and that includes us as well. The Spirit inspired Paul so that every word that Paul wrote is a word for you and a word for me. Of first importance in Paul's mind that the Philippians needed to hear, and what we need to hear is that difficulties inside the church and difficulties outside the church or opposition from outside the church in no way hinder the gospel. In fact, it advances it. Don't think that God's plan is thwarted when troubles rise. Rather, know for certain that what, whatever happens in the church, whatever happens in the world, God's plan for the advance of the kingdom of God is being revealed. This is really the lesson of chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So if you're there, follow along as I read. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. We'll stop there. As Paul moves into the body of this letter, he says, Now I want you to know. He says, I know you're concerned about me in my, in my imprisonment, that the, the fact that I'm in prison and have been for multiple years. But let me tell you, Paul says, what is actually going on here. He wants them to look at his imprisonment through a particular perspective. And in doing so, we learn how to think about the difficulties in our life. And here's how we should think about it. Whatever happens in our lives, whatever happens in the church, God's plan for the advance of the gospel is being revealed. Specifically from this text, we can know that God uses our circumstances to advance the gospel through two different means. Through me and through you. Or let me put it this way. Here are the two points of today's message. The first point is that God uses my circumstances, your circumstances, to work in and through me to advance the gospel, or in and through you, you personalize it. So God uses your circumstances to work in and through you to advance the gospel. And secondly, God uses your circumstances to work in and through others to advance the gospel. 
So your circumstances, God is using to work through you and to work through others. That's, that's the point. Those are the two points of this message. And the purpose of knowing these truths is so that, like Paul, we would rejoice in times of trouble. In our introductory message on Philippians, I define joy as that emotion of delight and strength produced by the Holy Spirit when God's truth is the filter through which we view the issues of life. And so when we learn to view our troubled circumstances through the, uh, through the truths of this text, we will rejoice. Well, let's begin with the first truth. Point number one, know that God uses your circumstances to work in and through you to advance the gospel. Look again at verses 12 and 13. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. If we learn anything about, uh, from, from church history or from biblical history, it's that while civil authorities love to use prison to stamp out the advancement of the gospel, prisons are God's favorite tool to advance the gospel. Just think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was incarcerated, if you can put it that way, for less than 24 hours, and one man came to Christ because of his imprisonment. The thief who was crucified along with Christ. More than that, of course, his execution was the very basis out of which salvation was made available to the world. In Acts 4 and 5, it's the arrest of the apostles that brought them before the leaders of the Jewish nation. And they proclaimed the gospel to the entire leadership all at one time. Happened yet again in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, one of the men who had been appointed to care for widows, he, he was arrested for pro- proclaiming Christ. He stood before the Jewish leaders and as his defense, he proclaimed the gospel. And then Acts chapter 8 tells us that it was his execution that caused the gospel to go from being localized in, Jer- in Jerusalem to spreading out to the regions of Judea and Samaria. So time and time again, getting arrested or or getting incarcerated did not hinder the gospel. In fact, it spread it even further. Now, Paul here in verse 12 refers to his circumstances. And he's almost certainly referring to his present circumstances, the fact that he's imprisoned or detained in Rome. He's not in prison as such. This is really a a home uh, under, he's under house arrest. He's living in his own rented quarters, according to Acts chapter 28, verse 30. And with that arrangement, he has a high degree of freedom to receive visitors, to to preach and to teach uh, and to interact with others. But he is limited, of course, in his movements. He has to, to stay there in the home. And even though in this passage he refers to his present circumstances, this principle of God using our circumstances to advance the gospel absolutely applied to everything that Paul has experienced in the previous three years of his custody. You remember that he was arrested in Jerusalem and spent two years awaiting trial in Caesarea, and then after that had a pretty lengthy trip uh, on his way to Rome, where he is now being guarded by Roman soldiers. During During his two years in Caesarea, Paul had the opportunity, as he was making his defense, to proclaim the gospel to Governor Felix, who had multiple conversations with Paul out of his own interest. And 
Acts even tells us that it almost seems like Felix himself was converted to Christ. You can read about that in Acts chapter 24. After Felix left office, Festus took over as governor and Paul also had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to him. Uh, During that time, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, who were the, the highest civil authorities in the land of Israel, came to visit Festus and Paul preached the gospel to them as well. In all of those court proceedings, you can assume rightly that there would be dozens, if not even hundreds over time of court officials and slaves and soldiers who heard and witnessed Paul's boldness and confidence. As Paul was being transported from Caesarea to Rome, there was a group of prisoners there and of course dozens of soldiers along with them. And no doubt Paul would have been speaking the gospel and interacting with the other prisoners and the Roman soldiers. But then in Acts 27, we learned that there was a storm that caused a shipwreck, which landed them in this island called Malta, where they had to wait until the end of winter before another ship could take them on to Rome. And in those intervening months, rather than just sitting sitting there twiddling his thumbs, Paul continued to minister, and he found out about the leader of the island who had a father who was sick. And Paul had the opportunity to go to that man, and the Lord answered Paul's prayer and healed this man. And Acts 28 verse 9 says, after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. You can be sure that as person after person was coming to Paul, getting healed of their diseases, Paul was not just acting as a medical doctor healing diseases, but he was acting as a spiritual doctor ministering the gospel to their souls. You know, we often talk about Paul's ministry in terms of his first, second, and third missionary journeys. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but think about this. Sometimes when we think about that, we, we assume in our minds that his four-year imprisonment, two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome, was kind of a break for him in ministry. But it wasn't a break. His imprisonment was the Lord putting Paul in places where the gospel needed to be proclaimed where a free person could never otherwise go. Well, because of all of this, and excuse me, before all of this, earlier in Acts 21, when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, before he got arrested, the prophet Agabus showed up as Paul was making his way. And Uh, Paul was surrounded by Luke and and other friends and people in the area who knew him. And Agabus prophesied that Paul would be arrested if he went to Rome, excuse me, to Jerusalem. Luke describes the response of Paul's friends this way in Acts 21.12. When we heard this, when we heard this prophecy, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go there. You're going to be arrested and we can't have that. We wouldn't want our leaders to go to jail. But you know why Paul was not concerned about that? Because Paul knew that God would use his circumstances to work in and through him to advance the gospel wherever he was. And that's exactly what God did every step of the way. But as I noted, Paul refers here to his present circumstances to the fact that he's a prisoner in Rome. How, how did God use Paul's circumstances to advance the gospel? You, you see it there in verse 13. He says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard was 
really Caesar's personal guard. It was the soldiers who were handpicked, thousands of them to guard the city of Rome and the emperor at the center of it. Guard duty shifts were changed about every four hours. And so over the course of the year, with at least two soldiers uh, at a time, uh, there would have likely been hundreds of soldiers who had exposure to Paul as, as they were guarding him. And he was ministering and, and proclaiming the gospel to them. Many of them, of course, would have done so repeatedly in terms of having shifts to guard Paul. Uh, these were men whose, again, primary responsibility was to guard the city from any threats and to guard the emperor. These, these men were chosen for their fitness for a task. These weren't just the, the, the lanky, you know, the, the guys who couldn't hatch it out in the real world. These were the guys that if all else failed, they were going to guard the city. They were pagans. They worshipped false gods. And in particular, it was their duty to worship Caesar as Lord and Savior. And here they are guarding this Apostle Paul. This man who, by comparison to the criminals they would typically guard, was kind and gentle and humble. He didn't complain. He didn't argue. He, he doesn't carry a rebellious attitude. I mean, we know that the Jews hated the Romans and the Romans hated the Jews, but Paul didn't act like other Jews did. He didn't treat the soldiers with contempt. We re read in Acts 21 and 27 of his interactions with Roman soldiers, and so we know that the way he did that was graciously. He treated them as fellow image bearers of God and those who needed Christ and the gospel. So Paul conversed with these soldiers as they were just standing around him with nothing else to do. He was, he was not a threat to them. He was not a danger. No doubt he told them about his testimony of having been uh, visited by the risen Christ. The same testimony he told to Felix and to Festus and to King Agrippa. He likely showed concern for these soldiers and talked to them about their families. Day after day, he spoke the truth in love to these men. And beyond that, Paul, again, could receive visitors, and he constantly had his ministry partners around him, and he would send letters, often dictating them. And so the soldiers overheard Paul's conversations with Timothy and Epaphroditus and all of those who would come to visit Paul. In fact, Acts 28, verse 31 says that during Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome, Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The only difference between his normal ministry is he was just sitting in a house instead of going to, from place to place. So these Roman soldiers would have had the front row seat to the Apostle Paul's ministry day after day. And think about this. They likely heard Paul dictate the letters he was sending to churches. So these pagan Roman soldiers were apart from Paul's ministry partners, the first people on the planet to hear Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, the inspired word of God, they were the first ones to hear it. These soldiers quickly realized that Paul was falsely accused and falsely imprisoned. Paul was no threat to Rome, and he certainly wasn't a threat to the nation of Israel. And yet, even in that unjust situation, they observed Paul's response that he wasn't angry, he wasn't bitter, he wasn't hostile, but he continued to speak and to write and to spread the gospel. 
Paul would have been an enigma to these soldiers. And there's no doubt that in the barracks or the bathhouses or the headquarters or wherever soldiers hung out, they would have been talking to each other. Hey, did you hear what Paul said today? Did you, did you hear what Paul did today? Somebody came and Paul healed that person. Or Here's a letter that Paul wrote to this church. Listen what he said about his God, this man, Jesus, who rose from the dead. Paul may, have, may well have been the most unique prisoner the soldiers in Rome had ever encountered. And so word about him and his message spread far and wide. In fact, one author writes, a court, uh, referring to Paul's imprisonment, quote, what most people, including Christians, would appear Excuse me, what to most people, including Christians, would appear to have been an unmitigated disaster was an unequaled opportunity for the progress of the gospel, unquote. Whereas we think that in order for the gospel to spread far and wide, we need to have no opposition. We need to have complete freedom. There shouldn't be any threats. There shouldn't be any legal barriers. If, if we have all of that freedom, surely then we can get the gospel out. But the reality is the gospel spreads any and every time we respond to difficulties as the unique gospel opportunities that they are. That's not to say that we shouldn't pray for prisoners to be released from prison. After all, in verse 18, in the second half of it that I didn't read, uh, in verse 19, he says that it is through their prayers that Paul is going to be, and he's hoping to be, delivered from them. So Paul doesn't want to be in prison. He's not preferring that over being free. But this is to say that we shouldn't assume that God's gospel is being hindered when we're in difficulties. Or to use a different situation, we shouldn't, uh, this isn't to say we shouldn't ask for healing and deliverance from suffering as if that's somehow uh, a problem for God. But rather, we should take advantage of those unique opportunities to be witnesses for Christ. If we embrace our suffering as an opportunity to depend on the Lord and to be His witnesses before others, our difficult circumstances become distinct methods that the Lord uses to advance His kingdom. For example, when we realize that our medical suffering puts us in contact with nurses and doctors and caretakers whom we would otherwise not meet, and that perhaps God is using our temporal physical suffering to meet the spiritual needs of that of those who are caring for our temporal bodies, we might just find that God intended our suffering to work in another person's life. Or if we're falsely accused and find ourselves in prison for whatever reason, whether it's because you're a Christian or otherwise, we have an opportunity to shine the light of Christ to those who are around us. Not that we should be seeking these opportunities. Let me break my arm so I can go see a doctor somewhere. Or let me break the law so I can go to prison. We should pray for relief. We should pray for justice. We should pray for healing. But as long as we are in that situation, the Lord intends to use it for the advancement of the gospel. And so we have to set our minds on that purpose and we are to pray toward that end. If we find ourselves in difficulty or we know of someone else in a moment of difficulty, we ought to pray, Lord, please relieve this suffering. But while they're in that suffering, Lord, use them to be a witness for Christ to others. 
you don't really have to think very long before you can come up with significant advances in the gospel, of the gospel that the Lord has used prison to accomplish. Apart from the examples in scripture, let me just give you three. John Bunyan wrote what is the, the, the next bestseller in the world history other than the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress in Prison. Chuck Colson, who was justly imprisoned, uh, began Prison Fellowship, which is now a worldwide ministry where millions of prisoners hear the gospel around the world. Third example is the largest maximum security prison in America, Angola Prison in Louisiana, houses multiple churches and has a seminary where they actually send missionaries to other prisons through internal prison transfers. So for Christians, a jail sentence is not the end of gospel proclamation and influence. It is an opportunity for the gospel to spread in a new sector of society. And if this is true about jail, it's certainly true about other situations you can find yourself in. Whether trouble lands you in, in the hospital or in court or in another country or in another job or in another neighborhood, everywhere the Christian finds themselves is a new place to represent Jesus Christ. And so rejoice, knowing that God intends to use your circumstances to work in and through you to advance the gospel. But that's not all. Secondly, we see here that we, we must know that God uses your circumstances to work in and through others to advance the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says, And that most of the brethren having trusted in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have, much, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. When we find ourselves in troubling circumstances, God uses that situation to work in and through others to advance the gospel. In Paul's case, being in prison emboldened other Christians to proclaim Christ. Notice how he says, and that most of the brethren... Most could be translated many or a great number. Whatever the actual numbers are, the, the point is simply this. This wasn't dozens of people. This was a large number of Christians. The troubling circumstances of one man led to the multiplication of evangelists in the Christian world. How did God work in their lives? Well, it says that they have now courage, far more courage, to speak the word of God without fear. By implication, there was something previously that was hindering them, that was restraining these believers from speaking the word of God to their family or to their friends or, or to their community. But now they are unrestrained. They, ha they have an abundance of courage. There's now no fear in their hearts as they proclaim the truth of God to others. And so you can see how the gospel would advance. As, as the number of evangelists has exponentially increased, the, the number of people who are hearing the gospel exponentially increases even more. Now let's just pause and think about the amazing way that God works here. I mean, if we were to try to come up with some strategy for how to improve the outreach of our church in, in our region, we would likely say, well, we have to, we have to train people, right? So we have, we have to get people who are interested in outreach together to say, here's how you can explain the gospel to other people. And then we would brainstorm about ways that we can engage with the community to say, what, what, what are our opportunities where we can go and stand and, and interact with, with our community? And then we would plan a date and a time where we say, okay, Tuesday at five o'clock, let's go here and let's evangelize. 
just imagine that God shows up to that strategy meeting and he throws out this idea. Hey guys, how about we uh, take our most effective evangelist and throw him in prison? That'll be great. I mean, would you agree with me that if we were there, I mean, beside the fact that God's there uh, in, in some visible manifestation, but we would be stunned, shocked, speechless, thinking, is God losing it? Throw our most effective evangelist in prison? How in the world is that supposed to help us advance the gospel? I mean, we need that person to not only do evangelism, but to train and equip and model so that we could observe them and, and learn from their example, or maybe just, just give a speech so that they motivate the rest of us before we go door to door or whatever we're, we're about to do. Why is it that the methods we come up with to advance the gospel are so different than God's? Right? I mean, we want to do things biblically. We want to do things God's way. So why do we come up with methods that are completely different than the methods that God uses? Well, here's, here's, and here's a couple answers. This is not exhaustive, but here's a couple answers. There are two significant differences among a host of others, but just two for your consideration at this moment. Two differences between us and God. First, in our finiteness, we plan in a very limited way. We think about particular moments, particular people, particular situations. But in God's infinite wisdom, in his omniscience, his plans involve billions of people on the planet. God knows the name of every person on earth, and he is doing something in particular in every person's life. And so he is working things in Columbia, Maryland today that will have an impact on people around the world. God is able to do that in a way that we can't even comprehend. A second difference between us and God is that God is able to work directly into the heart of individuals. Whereas all we can do is speak. When we strategize and we plan how to do outreach, we're, we're trying to come up with ways of how can we speak. Maybe how can we do something? How can we meet a need? But that ultimately is to lead to speaking. How can we get into the hearing of another person so we can explain the gospel? But God, he directs and moves and shapes the heart of people immediately and directly according to his will. When God works for the advance of the gospel, he can, he can do work in the heart that we cannot do. And so what we think would discourage someone, God can use to encourage them. What sounds foolish to the natural man, God transforms them so that they hear the wisdom of the gospel. What might otherwise anger a person, God uses to produce joy in them. I mean, we can't even begin to understand how God actually works in the heart, but that's exactly what God does. So when we find ourselves utterly confused in our circumstances of what is God up to right now, the reason we are in the dark is because we don't have a clue about how God is orchestrating an entire planet of billions of people. And we have no idea what he is doing in the hearts of other individuals 
that maybe we don't even know at the moment. And so rather than getting depressed or anxious because it seems like God doesn't know what he's doing, rather we should rejoice because we can be confident that God is working out his good purposes, not just in our life, but in the lives of others. And it'll only take time, maybe even eternity for us to figure out what that is. But God is at work. Paul is in prison and many Most of the brethren are trusting in the Lord and having far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You can't plan that. You can't orchestrate that. That's not a campaign. That's simply the work of God in others as the result of Paul's circumstances. Now, let's dive into this a little bit more because it's easy for us to to think about how God would do this in terms of I'm suffering and my suffering turns into a blessing for someone. They hear my testimony. They see, see how God is working. That encourages them. That emboldens them. And they go out and proclaim the gospel. That's, that's pretty easy to, to accept. But what about when someone responds to my suffering in a sinful way? What about when, when people use our circumstances for their selfish purposes? What about when others maliciously want to increase my suffering? Listen to this, even that God uses to advance the gospel in ways we can't comprehend. Look again at verses 15 to 18. He says about those who have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some of them, verse 15, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So clearly here among those who are speaking the word as a result of Paul's imprisonment, there are those who are doing it for good and God-honoring motives and reasons, and there are those who are doing it for sinful, malicious, self-promoting motives. Notice how Paul describes the first group with good motives. In verse 15, he says they have good will, which simply means that their motives are out of a desire to do what is good and right. In verse 16, he says that they're motivated by love. And we can rightly understood this as love for God or love, or excuse me, and love for Paul, love for God and love for Paul. But I think the emphasis is on love for Paul because it's contrasted with those who are opposed to Paul. Their love for Paul motivates them to imitate his faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel without fear. Their love for Paul compels them to to continue that mission that Paul is, is so invested in of proclaiming the gospel more and more. They know Paul wouldn't want the gospel to be stamped out, and so they pick up the torch and keep running for the cause. For three years, Paul's imprisonment has left a vacuum in terms of the public proclamation of the gospel, It's not to say that no one was evangelizing. Most of the other apostles were still living and preaching at this time. But the public witness of the gospel took a hit when the apostle to the Gentiles was taken out of public sphere. And so those who love Paul stepped up and continued the work. But then there's this other group who didn't love Paul. In fact, quite the opposite. They they were jealous of him. And they used his imprisonment to embolden themselves to evangelize with greater courage. 
listen how he describes it. In verse 15, he uses the words of envy and strife. In verse 17, he says they were preaching Christ from selfish ambition, not for the sake of Christ. They were actually hoping that their proclamation of the gospel would increase the distress in Paul's life as he sits there under house arrest. And then in verse 18, he uses the word pretense to describe their actions. That is to say, they were preaching under false motives for the sake of appearance. They wanted to look good, but they had ulterior motives. So there were those who were adversaries of Paul inside the churches. We don't know who they were. Were these preachers in Rome? Were these preachers in Philippi or elsewhere? We're not sure. And by using the the words strife and envy to describe their motivation, it seems as though these opponents were envious of Paul's influence and his apparent success, at least from their perspective. Perhaps like Aaron and Miriam, who in Numbers 12 were jealous of Moses' prominence, these opponents of Paul were jealous of his prominence among the churches throughout the known world. You recall that in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul admonished the church because they were dividing over their favorite preachers. Maybe some of these opponents were people who wanted greater notoriety, but because of Paul's influence, they were having a hard time getting traction. Whatever the case, in their sin, they thought they could cause Paul to lose sleep if he knew they were out there preaching the gospel and gaining influence. And in their sin, that's what they wanted. They wanted to rub the salt in the wound of Paul's imprisonment so that he would feel the sting even more. I mean, can you imagine that? How wicked do you have to be to have such malicious thoughts against the apostle Paul? Answer, not very wicked at all. These were not unbelievers. By what Paul says here, we can only conclude that these malicious preachers, though they were, they were brothers in Christ who were preaching the true gospel. But they were Christians who were caught up in envy and jealousy. And out of their bitterness, they were led astray and wanted to intensify the strife that they had with Paul. They were not concerned with unity or harmony or humility, or love, or compassion. Their thoughts were not at all on serving Christ, or being faithful, or caring about the lost. As they preached the gospel, their eye was on elevating Paul's distress. As disturbing as that seems, all we need to do is examine our own hearts and realize that we too can be easily motivated by jealousy and envy. We too can have that I'll show them mentality. We can find ourselves in that mindset where we're trying to prove to our opposition that they are wrong about us. Whether it's in ministry or in work or even in the family. These kinds of sinful attitudes can creep up inside of us. But come back to the text and we see that for their part, Paul's opponents wanted to increase his suffering But listen, because Paul viewed his circumstances through the filter of God's truth, their actions only produced joy in him. Look again at verse 18. What then, he says, 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul had no concern about himself. He wasn't concerned about personalities or who was doing the work of ministry or why they were doing it. His only concern was the proclamation of Christ. As long as the gospel is being spread, he doesn't care who's getting the speaking opportunities. If it's his friends or his ministry partners or those who are opposed to him, it doesn't matter. Paul rejoices springing up within him is delight and strength. Why? Because he knows that the priority is Christ. It's the gospel, not who is spreading it. What matters is that Christ is exalted, not who is doing the exalting. What's most important is that believers are being built up in the truth and that more and more unbelievers are hearing about the forgiveness that is available through the final finished work of Christ. After all, Paul is in prison because of his commitment to spread the gospel as far and as wide as possible. And because of that commitment, he rejoices that the gospel just keeps going forth more and more. This is the kind of attitude Paul wants the believers in Philippi to embrace. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to cultivate here at Hope Bible Church. He wants, the Lord, he wants us to know that the Lord uses our circumstances to work in and through us to proclaim the gospel. And he uses our circumstances to work in and through others to proclaim the gospel. Now, what might this look like for us? Let me close by offering several points of application. What we can all learn is this foundational truth through which we should view all of our circumstances. Here it is. There is nothing more important in life than that Christ is proclaimed. There is nothing more important in life than that Christ is proclaimed. We should have no greater desire than to see Christ exalted in and through our circumstances, whatever they may be. Every joy, every sorrow, every success and every failure, every victory and every defeat, every season of suffering and every season of blessing, every situation in our life is an opportunity for the gospel. That's especially true of times of turmoil and suffering. Let me tell you what I mean by an opportunity for the gospel. What I mean by that is that every situation, in every situation, we have the opportunity to imitate the character of Christ. And we have the opportunity to speak the word of Christ. As we move through Philippians, we'll see a number of exhortations on how we can imitate Christ in times of trouble. We'll learn about how Christ wanted to serve God above all things. He was committed to serving the Lord and fulfilling the God's, God's will in his life. We'll also see in chapter 2 how he had the attitude of humility. He was willing to give up everything for the sake of accomplishing redemption. He never grumbled. He never complained. And there's going to be many more things that we're going to learn on how we can imitate the character of Christ and, and present, represent Christ to those around us in our circumstances. 
I mean, I was even thinking about this last night, of course, had the sermon on my mind, sitting in our chair, uh, a remote fell next to the chair where there's, you know, just a few inches between the chair and the wall. That moment you're like, oh, I can't believe that just happened. And what went through my mind was, I need to make sure I'm representing Christ in this moment and imitating the character of Christ. Even in the most mundane moments of life, we have the opportunity to imitate and reflect the character of Christ. I mean, our responses to our circumstances should really cause other people to wonder, why do they respond the way that they do? Why don't they respond like everybody else? Gospel opportunities are moments where we have the privilege of following in the footsteps of Christ, but they are also opportunities to to speak about Christ, to use words to tell other people about who this God-man is that we worship, that He is Lord and Savior, that He gave His life for sinners, that He paid for our sin and He offers salvation to anyone who would believe. And who knows how the Lord will use our boldness and our courage and our lack of fear to bring salvation into the lives of others. So while we're not wrong to desire and even pray for the end of suffering, we must view our suffering as an opportunity from the Lord to exhibit Christ-like character and to potentially minister to those around us. That's one lesson we can draw because... What's most important is that Christ is proclaimed. Another lesson we can draw from this text is to never underestimate God's ability to work through the lives of others through your circumstances or in the lives of others through your circumstances. Whether or not you know them or they know you. This is what's mind-boggling to us is we can only think in terms of our awareness, but God can work in through our lives beyond Areas that we're even aware. I hope you've read at least one Christian biography in your life. You should read a lot more than one. But what's the purpose of Christian biography if not to allow the sufferings of one person to minister and encourage many others? Innumerable missionaries over the centuries have suffered greatly and God has used their suffering to spread the gospel even more than he's used their own preaching. You might recall the death of five men, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian. These five men were killed in 1956 by the Alca tribe in Ecuador before they even had a chance to speak the gospel. And we would say, what a tragedy. What a waste. But it's been said that their deaths spurred the greatest missionary effort in the recent memory. Thousands of missionaries point to their death 65 years ago as what spurred and motivated them to go out and become missionaries themselves. Jim Elliott's quote, which I'm sure you've heard, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That became a motto for a generation of Christians. Or you can look to someone like Johnny Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic at the age of 18 when she dove into a shallow pool. After the Lord saved her, soon after that, for the last 55 years, the Lord has used her to minister and proclaim the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. 
men and women like these knew that God intended to use their circumstances to work in the lives of others to advance his kingdom. So they responded to difficult circumstances by imitating the character of Christ and speaking the word of Christ. And the same can be true of us here at Hope Bible Church. Whether or not we minister to thousands or even just to one person, God can work through us and through our difficulties to accomplish his purpose in someone else's life. So beloved, when trouble comes, what we learn from Philippians 1, 12 to 18 is we should rejoice because the gospel advances still. Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect on these truths from your word, it is incomprehensible to us. We can't wrap our mind around the, the ways in which you work because your ways are mysterious. They are dark to us. But you've given us this and other passages to remind us that you are always at work, that you are faithful. You have ordained all things from before time began. And that means that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in as an individual, as a family, as a church, you have ordained those moments to some way, somehow, even if we're not aware of it, to advance the gospel. Lord, help us to be a people who look at our troubles and instead of grumbling and complaining and sulking in the corner, instead we rejoice to say somehow God is going to use this to advance the kingdom. Help us to look out for the people you put into our lives in those moments to say, how can I minister? How can I imitate Christ? How can I proclaim Christ? Help us to be faithful. Do that, Lord. Not because we want to be famous, not because we want to be able to tally up the things that we have done, but solely because we want to see Christ proclaimed. May that fill our hearts with joy. And may you be glorified in all things. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.